If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. That's page 808 in the, in the Black Pew Bibles there in front of you if you're using one of those. Matthew chapter 3. In two weeks, we'll be holding our first ever baptism class here at Redeemer. We talk a lot about baptism here. We talk about it in the membership class, but we're going to have a, just a two-week class specifically for or on baptism. Two weeks, three, three weeks, three weeks, sorry. It's in two weeks, but it's a three-week class. Uh, we strongly encourage anyone and everyone to attend that class if possible, The class is especially important for anyone who has not been baptized or for anyone who might have questions about what baptism is or why we practice baptism the way we do. Our church's statement of faith defines baptism this way. Baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus essential for the obedience of every believer in which he is immersed in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as a sign of his fellowship with the death and resurrection of Christ of remission of sins, and of giving himself up to God to live and walk in newness of life. It is prerequisite to church fellowship and to participation in the Lord's Supper. Now, that statement's going to be unpacked uh, thoroughly throughout our baptism class, but some of the questions that often come up when people talk about baptism have to do with a specific, specific person, John the Baptist. Because remember, John the Baptist was baptizing people before Jesus instituted baptism as a Christian ordinance, okay? In fact, John was baptizing before Jesus even began his earthly ministry. And John, as we know, baptized Jesus, right? So what did John's baptism mean? How was it different than Christian baptism? What was the purpose of John's baptism? And what, if anything, does John's baptism mean for us today? So in order to understand or answer those questions, we need to keep in mind that if we're going to understand John's baptism, um, we have to first understand who was John the Baptist, what was his message, and what was he like? What was his character These things are all connected, and they're going to help us understand the meaning and purpose of John's ministry. Think about this. What if we tried to unpack the meaning of Christian baptism, but we never considered the identity of Jesus or the message of Jesus or the character of Jesus? I mean, we we wouldn't really get very far, right? Um, we would never be able to make much progress in our understanding of Christian baptism if we neglected those things. Because the ordinance of baptism cannot be separated from the one who instituted that ordinance. The same goes for John the Baptist. The New Testament actually gives us a lot of information about John's identity and his message and his character. So, as we consider the ministry of John the Baptist today, I think we're going to come away with much more than just a more informed view, right? This is not just a lecture on, here's John the Baptist, and here's what he taught, and let's all go now, and because we've learned something about John the Baptist. No, I think we're actually going to be challenged today. My hope is that we would be challenged by John's identity. We'd be challenged by John's message, and we'd be challenged by John's character 
The ministry of John the Baptist should rebuke us and challenge us and encourage us. So today, as we look at Matthew 3, and here's my main point, my hope is that we would see that the ministry of John the Baptist is a testimony of God's grace, it's a warning of God's judgment, and it's a proclamation of a new covenant. That's my, that's my main theme. Those are my three points. And so, uh, the, the ministry of John the Baptist is a testimony of God's grace, a warning of God's judgment, and a proclamation of a new covenant. So, let's read with, starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But... When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham." Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. First, we see that the ministry of John the Baptist is a testimony of God's grace. It's a testimony of God's grace. We have to remind ourselves of who John the Baptist was. Remember that John's mother, Elizabeth, was barren her entire life until, Scripture tells us, she was advanced in years. Then the angel Gabriel appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and told him that Elizabeth would have a son. His name would be John, and he would be great in the sight of the Lord. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Later, we're told that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He would turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Later in Luke 1, we're told that John would be the prophet of the Most High, for he will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So according to the Gospel of Luke... John's conception was a miracle. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born, and he would be the one to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus himself would say that there had not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest man who had lived up until that time. It's quite a statement. Now, before we go further, we have to remember also that John the Baptist was born after about 430 years of prophetic silence. From the time the Old Testament ended to the time John the Baptist came on the scene, it had been about 430 years since the Jewish people had received a true prophetic word from God. And... As we think about Old Testament prophets, we have to remember that God 
many, many times throughout the Old Testament, would send his prophets, um, prophet, many times multiple prophets, to his people before he would come and do anything big, Any, before there would be judgment, before there would be a big change in Israel's circumstance. He would send prophet after prophet after prophet. What if God just started sending the plagues on Egypt without sending Moses to warn the Egyptians and the Israelite people? What if the Assyrians just showed up and destroyed the northern kingdom and took them captive in 722 B.C. without any warning from God? What if the Babylonians did the same to the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. without any warning from God? Would God be unjust to send that judgment? No, He wouldn't. But He shows His grace over and over and over in the Old Testament by sending prophet after prophet after prophet to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord so that they might escape His judgment. It's even more an act of grace that God would send a prophet to turn the hearts of His people back to Him. And that's exactly what John's role is. He is the last Old Testament prophet. He's not in the Old Testament. He's in the New but he is functioning essentially as an Old Testament prophet, turning by his ministry, try, trying to turn the hearts of God's people back to the Lord before the coming judgment. Here we meet John in Matthew's gospel. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea, we are told. Now imagine this happening today. Some weird guy living in a tent in a cornfield, 10 miles outside of town. You know, if you ever drive up to Rantoul, like before you get to Rantoul, it's just like this, it's a huge field. It's like 10 miles of field, right? Before you get to, I just picture like this desolate wasteland out there. You can just see nothing but fields. Imagine if you saw a guy, there's like a tent set up like way out there in the distance, and there's all these people standing around, some weirdo out there dressed in animal skins, uh, living off bugs, trying to convince you to let him dunk you in water, right? I mean, <laughs> I would run as far away from that guy as I possibly could. Um, but that's what John was doing. He was out in the wilderness, away from the city, away from civilization. He, he, was, he was calling people out of the city to himself. And isn't this the way God does things in the Bible anyway? God rarely does things the way we would. God repeatedly, if you have read the Old Testament, you know that he calls his prophets to do strange things, to make fools of themselves for the sake of God's message. John did not go to God's people in the city debating in the temples or standing before kings, at least not yet. He was in the wilderness calling people away from their busyness, away from distraction, away from the religious system of their day. He was calling them to join him in the wilderness and recommit themselves to the ways of God. This is the grace of God on display. Now, I think this is significant for us to meditate on today. Some of us need to go into the wilderness now, maybe that means literally, physically getting away from our busy lives for a time. 
Maybe you really do need to go out into the wilderness to remove distractions, to spend time alone with the Lord and renew your commitment to him. Perhaps doing something like that isn't possible, actually going out into the woods. However, I would encourage you to find a wilderness, find somewhere to go to meet with God on a regular basis. Make this a physical location. Maybe it's your basement. Maybe it's your bedroom. Maybe you clean a closet out of your house and turn it into a prayer room. Wherever it is, go there regularly to get away from the the noise and the demands of our busy lives. Close your computer. Turn off the ambient music. Let God's Word alone dwell in you richly and let your requests be made known to Him. I'm confident that if we as individuals would seek God like this on a regular basis, God would be pleased to reveal himself to us. Now, I'm not saying that we should all leave civilization and become monks or shut ourselves off from the world. I'm not saying that our jobs and our families, our responsibilities are evil or that we need to to neglect them. But what I am saying is that we see this pattern in Scripture. This isn't just here. But we see that God meets with people in the deserts, in the wilderness, in the desolate places. There is something significant about that, and we would do well to find a time and a place to regularly meet with God, away from the busyness, away from the distraction. I encourage you to think about that today. John called people away from the city into the wilderness And we're also told that he had an outdated fashion sense and an appetite for six-legged insects. Now look at at verse 4. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now we're probably somewhat familiar with this description of John the Baptist. This is often the first thing I think of when I think of John the Baptist. He ate bugs, right? That's gross. Uh, Why was he so weird? Why does Matthew tell us he wore camel's hair and a leather belt? Well, it's because Matthew wants his readers to see the connection between John the Baptist and Old Testament prophets, specifically Elijah. So if you have your Bible, turn, keep your finger in Matthew 3 and turn back to the book of first, I'm sorry, of 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 1, the very beginning of the book. Second Kings chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go. Inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? 
And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. So do you see why Matthew tells us that John the Baptist wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist? It's clear now, right? He wants us to see in John that John is the new Elijah. He has come to bring God's message. He is to be, he is directly connected with the Old Testament prophets. He can be trusted. He is from God. But why eat locusts and wild honey? Well, not totally sure, actually. Read a lot about this this week. Some commentators think the locusts symbolize Gentiles and the honey symbolized the surrounding Gentile lands and eating them foreshadowed their inclusion into the new covenant because oftentimes when prophets would eat things, it meant that that wasn't a bad thing. That was like, this is becoming part of my ministry, right? So there's that symbolism there. We don't really see that direct symbolism borne out in Scripture. At least I didn't see it. But at the very least, we see that John, even in his diet, was marking himself off as someone who was different. He did not live where everyone else lived. He did not dress the way everyone dressed, and he did not eat what everyone else ate. His priorities were very different. Everything about his life meant to bring attention to the message that he was preaching, It was such an important message that it determined everything about him, including the food he ate. He lived the life of the poorest of the poor. He chose the path of little so that he could make much of Christ. We're also told in verse 3 that John is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, "...the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight." Now, it's helpful to go back to Isaiah 40 and read the surrounding verses to get an idea of what Isaiah was talking about. If if you go back to Isaiah 40, we don't have to turn there. Um, Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5 says this, "'Comfort, comfort my people,' says your God. "'Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John is the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. He's in the wilderness in fulfillment of this prophecy. But what does this mean? How does John the Baptist lift up the valleys and press the mountains low to make a straight way for the Lord? How does he do it? He does it by calling people to clear the valleys and mountains of their hearts. 
just like the Old Testament prophets came before judgment to correct and rebuke ungodliness, so John comes to do the same. To understand that, we now turn to John's message, a warning of God's judgment. John's message is summed up in verse 2. He says this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we need to think about this for a minute, or we'll miss John's radical message. When we hear the word repent, we may not think much of it because we talk a lot about repentance as Christians, right? Repentance is a way of life. We're always repenting. But put yourself in the position of the Jews who were hearing this message. Repent? Really? Repent of what? We are, after all, God's chosen people. The Gentiles, we can see how they would need to repent. The pagans worshiping false gods, but we are Jews. And remember Isaiah's prophecy. John would come to remove the valleys and the mountains in people's hearts. What was the one primary obstacle in the lives of the Jewish people in John's day? They counted themselves right with God because they were Israelites. Why would Israelites need to repent? And yet, here is a man claiming to be a prophet, calling God's chosen people to turn from their wicked ways and, ret- and return to the Lord. What do you mean, return to the Lord? This is not what they were expecting to hear. Many of them wanted a Messiah to come and rescue them from Roman rule and set up an earthly kingdom and give them back their land and their property and scatter the Gentiles to the wind. But John comes preaching heart change, confession, repentance, and recommitment to the Lord. One commentator said this about John's call for repentance. The idea that repentance was necessary in order to enter God's kingdom was something new, and this became a stumbling block to many Jews. They thought that as children of Abraham, they would automatically be granted entrance into Messiah's kingdom. John's message, however, was that a change of mind and heart was necessary before they could qualify for the kingdom. They did not realize how far they had drifted from God's law and the requirements laid down by the prophets. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase, kingdom of heaven, is used 32 times in Matthew's gospel. It's probably the primary theme in Matthew's gospel. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. John is announcing the arrival of a new kingdom but it will be unlike any kingdom that the Jews were expecting. It will be marked by confession, repentance, and faith. Ultimately, it will be marked by submission to the true king who is about to be revealed. We see in verse 5 that people responded and were baptized. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the surrounding region about the river Jordan were going out to him so that they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So let's talk a minute about John's baptism. What was the purpose of John's baptism? Well, John's baptism, when I say John's baptism, I don't mean John was baptized. I mean the the baptism that John was offering, right? He was performing. John's baptism is similar to, to Christian baptism, which Jesus would institute later. 
But there are, so there are aspects of both baptisms that, that both baptisms share, like confession of sin, repentance, uh, recommitment to God, right? Public display of submission to God. But John's baptism was strikingly different in one way. John was calling Jews out of their nationalistic mindsets, okay? So his baptism was calling Jews out of their Jewishness, in a sense, their Jewish mindset. To be baptized by John meant that you were repenting of your old identity and being individually prepared for a new work of God. In Christian baptism, that would come later through Christ, we are dying to our individual life of sin and being baptized into a new corporate body, the church. So in John's baptism, people were, be, were putting off their corporate identity and choosing to individually confess, repent, and be ready for the Messiah. But in Christian baptism, we're called to leave our personal identity of death and sin in the flesh and be raised to walk in newness of life in the church. Do you see the difference? In one sense, you're, the, John's baptism, they're leaving a corporate identity, they're, this false idea of Jewishness. They're putting on individual repentance and confession. In Christian baptism, we're getting rid of our individual uh, identity, and we are now identifying with a new corporate body, the church. This is significant as well when we consider that Jesus was baptized by John. Did Jesus have sin to confess? No. Did Jesus need to repent of sin? No. So what was Jesus doing being baptized by John? Well, we're told that he was fulfilling all righteousness. What does that mean? He was joining with his people in proclaiming that his identity as a Jew, while important, did not make him right with God. Rather, Jesus, just like everyone else, was submitting to the rule and reign of his Father. Jesus, along with John, was saying, stop counting on your Jewishness to make you right with God. Rather, be marked by humble submission to Him and publicly proclaim that submission through baptism. Now, right here, we're already getting a glimpse into the New Covenant understanding. God was about to start something very new among the Jewish people. It wasn't going to be an exclusively Jewish work. Being an Israelite would have no bearing on what was about to take place. And this is made even clearer as we read in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So there were Pharisees and Sadducees coming to John for baptism. These are the religious leaders of the day, the cream of the crop, and John calls them 
brood of vipers. They were snakes, deceivers, enemies of the message John was preaching. And John boldly calls them out for what they were. He doesn't try to have a conversation with them. He doesn't pull up a chair and try to reason with them, at least not here. He calls them what they are. It was clear they were hypocrites. They saw a practice, in this case it was baptism, that other people were doing, and they, they would not be outdone. No, no. If this new ritual is what God's people needed to do, then you better believe they would be the first in line to do it. They would not be upstaged by anyone when it came to public displays of obedience. But inwardly, they were dead. They were whitewashed tombs. They placed burden upon burden on the backs of God's people, and then they would not lift a finger to help them bear those burdens. They added to God's word law upon law, statute upon statute, until no one but themselves could meet their own strict requirements. This kept them in authority. It kept everyone else in submission to them. And what does John tell them to do? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, okay, you want to come be baptized? You want to proclaim confession and repentance? Prove it. Let's see some fruit, right? In other words, okay, time will tell, right? You want to come be baptized? You want to say that you're confessing and repenting? Time will tell. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Where there's no fruit, there's no root. And then John anticipates their response. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. You can hear them saying that, right? I mean, John's calling them to repent. I mean, they're Jews. What do they need to repent of? Like, whoa, John, calm down. We just came here to be baptized. We're not looking for trouble. We're definitely not trying to make any radical changes. And besides, we're all Jews, right? We have Abraham as our father. What are you getting so upset about? We're sons of Abraham. But John's not having it. He responds with one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. He says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John was clear. In the final analysis, the fact that they were sons of Abraham meant nothing. If God wants more children for Abraham, he can create them out of rocks. That's what John was saying. He doesn't need you. Your Abrahamic lineage does not make you special. It's time to put it off in return to the Lord. We also see in this response a foreshadowing of Gentile inclusion John said, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, and I think that's exactly what he did. Most of Israel rejected Christ as their Messiah. I mean, think about the book of Acts that we've been reading through, Chet's been preaching through. 
How city after city, the apostles go, they preach the gospel. They, some Jews turn to the Lord, but by and large, they reject Christ. They, the, the apostles face persecution and beatings. They move on to the next city. And what do, we, what do we see the apostles saying? Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. God raises true children for Abraham from dead hearts of stone. From those who were once cut off, they now are included in the kingdom. Friends, this is good news for us. As far as I know, we're all Gentiles. God has changed our dead hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Let's thank Him for it today. Verse 10 says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John says the cutting is about to begin. The judgment of God is coming. With the coming of Christ, those who are truly God's people will be revealed and the rest will be cast into the fire. The test is about to begin. Those who accept Christ and submit to his rule as king will be included in the kingdom, but those who by their hypocrisy and pride reject his rule, they will not escape his judgment. Church, this is a sobering warning for us today. God is faithful to save his people, yes, but he is also faithful to judge the wicked. With the coming of Christ came grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who are poor in spirit and willing to submit to Him, yes. But with the coming of Christ also comes rebuke and judgment and condemnation for those who proudly turn their backs to Him. When we hear the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there should be a sense of urgency in our response. We don't have the option of just sitting in the sidelines and observing how other people responded to God's call. We can't just sit here in this room and look at the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and say, man, they didn't get it, did they? Man, they were so wrong. No, we don't have that option to just sit here and do that. God is calling you to repent. God is calling you to confess your sins. What do you need to repent of today? What sin still has a grip on you? How are you suppressing the conviction and the correction that God is bringing to your mind, perhaps even now? Yes, the Jews in John's day definitely assumed they were right with God because they were Jews. But how do we, 2,000 years later, wrongly assume the same thing? Why do we think that we are made right with God today? I mean, really, think about that. Is it because you read your Bible every day? Surely that makes me right with God, right? Is it because you are a generally pleasant and likable person? Surely the judgment of God won't fall on people like that, right? Church, we have to consider the many ways we try to justify ourselves in God's sight. 
Anything less than confession and repentance and humility will only lead us to rely more and more on our own spiritual performance. We will diminish the grace of God and look to our own moral achievements as the basis of our salvation. And in the end, we will prove that we never belonged to Him. And the result of that, make no mistake, is judgment and eternal fire. Church, don't miss the opportunity today to confess your sins. Confess it to God. Confess it to a brother or a sister here. Confess it to the one you have sinned against and recommit yourself to the Lord. As we confess our sins and look to God's grace, let's also remember that the ministry of John the Baptist was the proclamation of a new covenant, a proclamation of a new covenant. Jesus himself tells us that John was the greatest man who had lived up until that point. But what made John the Baptist great? It certainly wasn't his social status. It wasn't his fashion sense. It wasn't riches or some new invention. Those are things that make that we think make us great in the eyes of the world. John was great because he gave his life to a single purpose, to point people to the one who would come after him. John literally gave his life calling people to repent and be made right with God. We know how John died, right? He called out Herod in his wickedness. He was beheaded for it. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John recognizes before anyone else the power and the holiness of the person of Christ. He knows that his own ministry is subject to the more important ministry of Jesus, which is about to begin. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is quoted as saying, he must increase, I must decrease. John did not put himself in competition with Jesus. Instead, he humbles himself under the hand of God. He confesses that he is not even worthy to carry the sandals of Christ. This is an amazing statement, considering it took Jesus' own disciples three years or longer to have this attitude. His own disciples argued until the end of Jesus' ministry which one of them would be the greatest in God's kingdom. But here, before Jesus even starts working miracles and making himself known, John the Baptist recognizes his place. He would rather be a doorkeeper in the kingdom of God than be the greatest man on earth and overshadow Christ. Man, I want that attitude. I want that heart. What makes John great is his reverence for Christ, his willingness to lay down his life to make Christ known. Church, this is what Christian ministry is. It really is. It's, it really is this simple. It is regularly directing people to look to Jesus. If you're here and you're struggling to love your neighbor, or maybe there's, 
people in your life you want to see come to know Christ. Be encouraged. Follow the example of John the Baptist. Humble yourself under the authority of Christ and point people to Jesus. Don't, don't point them to yourself. Man, we're so prone to do this. I am. I have to have the answers. I have to be the most theologically astute. I have to perform up to some standard if I'm going to have any credibility in the ministry. We have to point people to Christ. He must increase. We must decrease. If you're here and you're at all considering working in vocational ministry or serving as an elder or a deacon or a community leader or any other ministry position, you would do well to search your own heart on this issue. Are you truly humble? Are you truly teachable? Ask people, people you know will be honest with you. There are few things more destructive to Christian ministry than a leader competing with Christ for glory. It will destroy your soul and the souls of those you seek to lead. You will tear down what you say you are trying to build. But humility is not just for leaders. It's something we should all be praying for. And humility isn't just about being nice to people and keeping quiet, right? That's certainly not what John the Baptist did. He got killed for what he said. Humility is born out of a greater love for Jesus. As we give our lives over to his purposes and his work, our own agendas decrease and the agenda of Christ and his word increases. Our love for God increases. Our desire to see his kingdom established increases. And that is our motivation. That is our drive in ministry. John also gives us a glimpse into the coming baptism that Jesus would institute. John's baptism, he says, is marked by repentance. Jesus' baptism is marked by what? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. Throughout the Bible, God's presence is shown through fire. At Pentecost, that would come three years later, the disciples received the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire descended upon them. Here we have a foreshadowing of that event. The baptism of the Spirit will be accompanied by fire. Up until that point, the mark of the covenant was circumcision. Those who were circumcised were considered to be God's people. But with the coming of Christ, the mark of the new covenant would be baptism with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the baptism that Jesus would institute is the outward sign of an inward transformation. This is why we practice believers' baptism, right? We don't baptize infants. It's marked by the Holy Spirit in the person's life. When followers of Jesus are baptized, they are testifying to the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Again, this is different from John's baptism. Even here, John, it seems, recognizes that his baptism is incomplete. There would be a greater baptism coming, one accompanied by the very presence of God. If you're here today and you've been baptized... 
you have outwardly demonstrated that new covenant reality, that you've been changed and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Even though John's baptism was incomplete, we still see John pointing to the new covenant relationship that Christ would bring about. As we finish up this morning, I'd like us to consider these last words that John speaks in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's talking about Jesus here. This is very similar language to verse 10, where we see that God is the one doing this, and then we see that Jesus is the one doing this. Well, that says a lot to us about who John thought Jesus was. We see that one of the primary purposes for Jesus' coming is to execute God's judgment. There are dozens of references to a threshing floor in the Bible, some literal and some symbolic. See, in biblical days, there was no machinery. So after the harvest, the grain was separated from the straw and husks by beating it manually. First, there had to be a flat surface that was smooth and hard. This was the threshing floor. The process of threshing was performed by spreading the sheaves or the straw on the threshing floor, and then the oxen and cattle would walk on it repeatedly. They would loosen the edible part of the grain from the scaly, inedible chaff that surrounds it. On occasion, flails or sticks or uh, winnowing forks were used for this purpose. And then the forks were used to throw the mixture into the air so the wind could blow away the chaff and the grain would fall to the floor. So again, John leaves us with a choice to make. Christ is coming. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to be throwing the straw into the air And the wind is going to drive away the chaff, and the true grain will be gathered. The issue is black and white. You are either part of the wheat, useful in the kingdom of God, or you are chaff to be blown away by the wind and eventually burned in the fire. This is not strictly metaphorical or hyperbole. John is not exaggerating for effect here. He is dead serious, and we must take him seriously. How you respond to Christ is the most important response you can ever make. Is He your treasure? Are you decreasing so that He might increase? Have you received the gift of salvation that He is offering Do you think you deserve His grace and forgiveness because of something you have done or because of who your parents were or because you grew up in church or because you live in America and call yourself a Christian? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Is your life marked by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace? Are you growing in those things, kindness and forgiveness and self-control? We're not perfect. Are you growing? Do you have a desire for the things of the Lord? In the Gospel of John, we read that when Jesus was walking toward John to be baptized, John famously said these words, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've heard a lot about sin and judgment today. When Christ came, he came to clean out the threshing floor and throw the chaff into the fire. But he also came to make a way to escape that fire. See, three years later, he would be the one to take the sins of his people on himself by being publicly crucified. And then three days later, he would rise from the dead. And today, he sits in heaven, ruling over his people, and he is inviting you and anyone to confess your sins, to repent of your old ways and return to him in faith you will be received into his kingdom. You will be united with him. And what does that uniting mean? Let me close with Romans 6. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Church, may that be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. What a joy it is to spend time meditating on the words of Scripture. God, turn our hearts back to you, I pray. Each of us has areas of our life that we are reluctant to submit to you, to give over to you. I pray that today we would. We would confess our sins. We would turn from our old ways. And our love for you and our faith in Christ would increase in our own agendas, our desire for sin, our pride would decrease. Father, may Redeemer Church rejoice in our salvation that we have received. Thank you, God, for calling us out of darkness into your light. In Jesus' name, amen.